On this episode of Spell the Lassi, we're going to be talking to Milika Kaur of the Sikh Family Center about Karelu Hinsa, or domestic violence, in the Punjabi community. Now, this issue resurfaced for many of us with the recent incident surrounding Mandeep Kaur, a Punjabi Sikh woman in Richmond Hill, New York, who took her own life in part due to the severe violence she was facing at the hands of her husband. Sikh Family Center is a community-based U.S. nonprofit working to enhance the community well-being of Sikh families across the U.S. with a special focus on gender justice. They provide trauma-centered resources for victim survivors of violence, such as through their national helpline, and also work to change the social and cultural conditions that allow gendered violence to occur in the first place. They also provide training and assistance to other Sikh groups and Sangats looking to learn and better respond to these issues. And they regularly train non-Sikh organizations so that they are better able to serve Sikhs. They are grounded in cultural tradition, grassroots power, and intergenerational healing. Founded in 2009, the Sikh Family Center has been on a growth trajectory, especially in the last few years, to match the elevated demands of our communities. They have responded to more calls and requests for assistance already in 2022 than in any prior year. Their helpline can be reached at 866-732-7392. Malika Kaur is a co-founder and current executive director of the Sick Family Center. She also teaches at UC Berkeley School of Law, including classes on domestic violence law, as well as negotiating trauma, emotions, and the practice of law. She is the author of the recent book on human rights defenders in Punjab, published by Palgrave Macmillan. She believes what happens inside a home is intimately connected to what happens inside a community as a whole. Since struggles are connected, commitment to justice must never be selected. So we just wanted to, first and foremost, um, you know, you're one of the, um, you know, main heads of uh, Sikh Family Center, SFC, and we wanted to kind of just give a little bit of a background for the audience on what exactly Sikh Family Center is, how it started, um, what you guys are currently working on uh, in this space. Yeah, thank you, Bhat Merbani, for calling us. And uh, it's definitely really nice to talk to a larger community. Our whole focus at Sikh Family Center is that these are not issues that you need one organization for, certainly not the only as the only organization in North America focused on gender-based violence in the Sikh community. We never want to be doing this work alone. So let's let's step back. Um, 2001, after September 11, six in the U.S. especially, but across um, the diaspora really, created many organizations to talk about and really fight for Sikh rights and face the reality of what our lives were and how we were not just a model minority work hard heads down you'll be fine because that was never the case before September 11 and certainly not after and while six were busy making really necessary powerful institutions issues inside the families all the intra communities are so not like inter community issues and not oh we have like the larger majoritarian or white community or other people we need to go convince but mm -hmm. the the issues inside the intra community issues inside our own community kept getting pushed back further and further and this is not unique to the post 9/11 moment this has always happened that women um and other gender minorities and people who are 
less powerful on the gender pyramid are always told like oh wait your turn like you know sanu sare sade sareyan di gal ho jaye fir tuhadi vi ho jayegi like what's the big deal like oh eta chotiyan gallan ne but these are not chotiyan gallan when we have women losing and children losing their lives to domestic violence every day so a group of us began talking in the year soon after 911 but it wasn't till 2009 we had also been very all all of us as founders had been very involved in the post 911 world but in 2009 we organized to create formalize the sick family center as an organization for and by the sick community focused on gender justice and as the name suggests we don't believe this is a women's issue women are disproportionately impacted and and hurt and disempowered and killed by this issue but this is not a women's issue this issue is largely not caused by women even though it may be facilitated by some women it's not caused by women so we need everyone involved in this issue and we believe in you know jadon assi apne individual parivaran individual families no sehatmand karange healthy banavange then the larger sick family where our entire com is going to benefit so we so family is not just our biological family but we are talking about the larger sick family the only way we all thrive is by dealing with issues like domestic violence like child abuse like sexual assault and all the mental um health issues and trauma that come along with those so i mean i think it's clear that this has been an issue that has been ongoing in the punjabi community and in the diaspora um for quite some time but i think a lot of us maybe you know were kind of jolted back into reality and had this kind of come back to the forefront of our minds with the recent uh, incident with mandeep kaur um and her uh you know having died by suicide you know a few months ago um i guess kind of a two two part question um you know to, to the extent you can um you know just because it's been some time for the audience if uh you could give kind of a sort of a synopsis of of what occurred uh with mandeep kaur uh, several months ago and then also i think you know kind of based on what you just said the this issue kind of i think seems to be bigger than a lot of us realize and um you know i think may, maybe some of us have dealt with it in our own circles but you know a lot of people probably in our community haven't how you know to the extent you know you have data and are kind of able to share um you know how many families in the diaspora at least are in the US are kind of dealing with you know abuse of you know one of these kinds how widespread is it in the you know punjabi diaspora and do you think it's kind of been is there a particular trend is it getting better is it getting worse what are some some of the things that you're seeing in the patterns yeah yeah and thank you for asking um you know about mandeep kaur's death and talking about it so respectfully i think the i, I really mean that because it's not it's it's been one of those situations where people had a lot of their own emotional reactions when they heard about mandeep's death by suicide because there were these videos that circulated in august so just to take all of your you know listeners back those who may have not followed it since but also those who may have somehow not heard about it in august these videos were leaked of a woman very emotional distraught talking about domestic violence and saying she's she cannot take this any longer she's going to kill herself along with those videos there were other videos about her actually that she had secretly recorded um of her husband committing really horrific verbal but also very horrific physical violence including suffocation on her and her children can be heard in the background and a lot of people genuinely were shocked lost sleep you can hear those children a lot of us have young children or we love young children and it, it was really hard i mean i personally sick family center and i personally know scores of people 
who called us and got in touch, like saying, we literally cannot sleep. Like, what should we do? And they did proceed to actually um, take her life uh, and, and did die by suicide. And so the community was in this situation of how did we fail her? as a, you know, one question, but also community was full of ideas or like, what should we have done? And I think those ideas came from maybe a good place. The intent was perhaps good or what we should have done, but the impact is often um, for other survivors is where my focus would be for other survivors, including Mandeep's daughters tomorrow, who are going to grow up and look back on this time. We cannot pretend Mandeep's case was isolated. We also cannot pretend that we don't know about many other Mandeeps out there. Um, In fact, all Sikh Family Center surveys show that one in four Sikh women report incidents of domestic violence in the course of their lifetime. That exactly matches national surveys. And that should be shocking. Like one in four means anytime you're in a family gathering next time, it's not pleasant to do it loudly, but in your head, if you go, and I, I will tell you that it, this cuts across socioeconomic lines. This cuts across immigration status. This cuts across formal education. This cuts across, obviously, caste and other nonsense that we divide ourselves by. Because this is something that is age old. People exert power and control over those le- who are more vulnerable. And oftentimes people do that in their homes, which is a private space where they can really get this um, sense of power over another person without facing public consequences, right? So the same person who commits abuse in his own home may be the most polite neighbor. He might be the nicest sevadar at the Gurdwara. He might be the president of the Gurdwara. He might be the president of his medical association. He might be the president of his local bar association, like whatever. Um, it might be the you know nicest, kindest, most gentlemanly person you've met who in their own home, in the privacy of their own home, commits a series of acts that puts their partner in fear, which is really the definition of intimate partner or domestic violence, uh, that it's basically using a series of tactics that put another person in fear. So the one in four statistic, every survey we've ever done, we did 500 in-person surveys at Gurdwara's across the country when we first were created, the one in four number showed up. We did 500 online surveys with more anonymity to see, you know, what people respond. One in four shows up. And interestingly, what also shows up is when we ask people the question, has somebody you know, ki koi somebody, has there been anybody close to you ki koi who's been impacted by Karilu Hintsar family violence? Almost, it's like 48%, close to 50, half of the people are saying yes. Oh. Because people, if they really thought about it, right, like they will think, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a, a recent, um, we do these uh, support circles and just like community listening circles with Sick Family Center because our work is not just emergency response. We also seek to prevent the conditions that create, that allow for violence in our community. If we were doing only emergency response, if I was doing only emergency response for 20 years, I've done domestic violence, gender-based violence work. I could not continue. It's too, it's too hard to just emergency response and always only you know, um, feel like you're doing too little too late. Like we have to do prevention. We have to stop these things before they occur. And so we were having this listening circle recently and a woman said, you know, there's nobody. So this Benji's talking. She's like, oh, there's been nobody in my house. However, I know in society and she's talking. 
And 10 minutes into it, she says, you know, my pua, my father had to get from her house with her stuff because her husband was really violent. And then she stopped herself. She's like, so I guess I do know somebody who's a survivor of domestic violence. But she just like for her, that was a pua who she grew up with. She knew like she had just, you know, it's so common. It gets folded into the ordinary. And then we have to stop and really think, oh, right. That was domestic violence. That's like what led to that divorce or that sometimes death. People don't talk about domestic violence linked to a suicide or a homicide. Whereas every every year, whenever we track like six across the country, there are six cases of domestic violence, homicide, domestic violence, homicide, murder, um, suicide. So we're seeing all of those just like we see in non-sick in other communities. We're seeing them in our community as well. The thing that motivates us to do what we do at Sick Family Center also is that in our community, we find these incidents particularly shameful because we're a community of Guru Nanak. We're a community of Guru Gobind Singh. Like this is for us to have people being put in fear in their own homes as a community that's meant to thrive in fearlessness is is really to us um unacceptable and that's what gives us motivation to do to do what we do um and coming back to your your first question about Mandeep one thing to really keep in mind is her death she wasn't just a vachari crying on that like you know last video we have to remember she tried to survive for many years she migrated from one country to another to give her kids a better life she she did what for a long time what she could um and she suffered the terrible mental health trauma consequences of domestic violence which a lot of survivors face people should not fool themselves into thinking this happens only in punjabi speaking new immigrant economically vulnerable that you know homes this is happening in homes we work with we get calls from people of, again all backgrounds the doctors the lawyers the business owners um get across across the um you know keshatari non keshatari amritari non amrit like all of it um it just doesn't know any of those barriers this kind of violence which is both sad and a reminder that we're all in this together unless we lift each other up the entire community really really suffers you mentioned also some of these statistics based on some of these surveys that you've done how you know to the extent you have data from kind of other communities you know how does that number of 1 in 4 compare to kind of the general american population or you know sort of larger you know statistics um you know affecting the whole the whole country is it yeah. more frequent less frequent Yeah, yeah this is really really important to keep in mind i think just recently there was another article about you know mandeep kaur's suicide and there was this whole thing i think it was in some South Asian media but also um there's stuff that's been put out in the in the US media of like oh these immigrant women they're so vulnerable yes immigration and lack of language access lack of knowing the systems makes our people more vulnerable for sure at the same time the statistics across the US are are horrific you know mm-hmm. 10 million people a year in the US are victimized by domestic violence and the centers for disease control numbers are one in four women are physically or sexually abused by an intimate partner in the course of their lifetime so we actually absolutely map that number it it's not doesn't like it's neither a cause for celebration nor a cause for you know just um shrugging this off as oh it happens everywhere because again we should be in our community really thinking hard that when we say you know pe kahu ko detne ne pe manata on the fear non frightened on 
our kids are growing up because a lot of people are motivated by kids. So I'll just say kids. I am too motivated by the kids around us. We are raising our kids to really see us as hypocrites when we are saying one thing and not walking that talk. And so the U.S. statistic question is really important because this is not unique to a brown community or an immigrant community. However, the fact that we are immigrants of second, third, whatever, or very new immigrants or second, third generation, whatever it is, means that certain things are harder for us to do. It is harder for us to access resources. It is harder for younger, so your younger listeners know how hard it is to talk about dating to begin with, with their parents, much less dating violence. So for Sikh Family Center, we've been doing consent workshops with young people for the longest time. And these actually began in Gurdwara, um, in a Gurdwara setting because there were students doing summer classes, SAT summer classes. And we kind of got in, talked to some of the organizers, said, can we do one session? Like you're meeting these kids three times a week all summer. Can we do, or five times a week all summer? Can we do just one session on health, wellness, and safety in college? And they were like, yeah, you know, maybe you can. Maybe, let's see, give me one the... We walk in and the spice up walks in with us, like not a Granthi sub from the Gurdwara, just like this man who was a Sivadar at the Gurdwara. And we're like, oh, I guess he's here to watch what we do. And we're kind of worried. We do the workshop as we would have. We didn't censor ourselves. We talked about the fact that people do start dating in college. And it is hard to talk to your parents because we are in a community where people pretend and kids date in secret and all of that happens. And as we walked out, this man walked out with me and he said, my daughter is in that class. And I just came because... But I know that our kids are at risk when not just by the fact that they're dating, but the fact that none of us know what they're doing, right? And I think that is also important to keep in mind because the statistics nationally, and this is borne out in our experience amongst young people, women 18 to 24, which is young girls, are pretty horrific when it comes to intimate partner violence and death by intimate partner violence. So that, to me, that category of people, that young people who we think, you know, they have the vulnerability of age. And in our community, they sometimes have the vulnerability of not being able to use the support systems they need to use to, to you know, access more safety. So that's that's definitely one thing that comes to my mind besides the usual um, very important things that come to mind of like, if you don't know the language and you're trying to call self-help center, or you're trying to call a legal aid attorney, or you're trying to call a national hotline, you know, those things become all the more difficult or feel all the more hard to access if you don't have the literal language. So yeah. And, and that too, again, anyone listening, please, there are resources out there. It's not English, Nian, you can't call. We will literally practice with people what to say on the phone when they call an agency. If they choose to call the police, a lot of people choose not to, but a lot of people actually want to, and they don't know how the police would believe them, will practice that language. The people who want to think about how they should go and approach a legal aid attorney, we will both try to connect them with one and, you know, practice with them. How do you explain what's going on in your home to an attorney who doesn't understand how your mother-in-law, your sister-in-law, your sister-in-law's husband's brother is also part of the domestic violence, right? Like those are cultural things that they might not immediately get, but we get them at Sick Family Center and we figure out a way to kind of do that literal as well as cultural translation with the larger um, systems out there. So given that, I mean, it's just kind of piggybacking off of what you're saying. And given that this, unfortunately, 
epidemic seems to be across socioeconomic classes, you know, and c- cultural classes. Does is it does it, is it really the biggest barrier to survivors seeking help? It, does that mostly tend to be cultural? Then, if it's not necessarily linguistic, perhaps not necessarily financial in all cases, um, or sort of what what do you see are kind of what ends up being the biggest barrier for a lot of these survivors? The biggest barrier is the abuse and the person committing abuse themselves. Um, but across all communities, you know, and I don't want to make this super stats heavy because stats are only it's you know, we, we, we should always challenge statistics. Where are they coming from? Who's collecting them? How are they collecting them? But for the longest time, ever since I've done this work, this statistic also keeps reappearing that on average, across cultures in the nation, on average, it takes somebody dealing with abuse seven to 11 times to leave an abusive relationship. So, you know, and again, I'll say that again, it takes seven to 11 times. So if you are somebody listening right now, who's like, Yes, abuse is horrible. And I try to get my best friend out of a really bad situation. And, you know, I put my everything into it, my time, my effort, my emotional energy, blah, blah, blah. And she went back. Like women just don't, you know, listen, blah, blah. Just try to think it's not about what we did and how well we did it. The fact is somebody intimate partner violence, domestic violence is not like being pickpocketed. It's not like being carjacked. It's all, it's not even being like being physically assaulted out in public. You are in a space that is meant to be your safest space with the person and that's who's supposed to be your intimate partner, who's supposed to see you and su- support you in your most vulnerable situation in life, in every part of your life. And when that becomes a source of fear and the source of domination, it is really hard to move away without losing a sense of even like yourself. So there's there are a lot of reasons why people can't leave, including they imagine their life a certain way and they really, you know, they're seeing it, seeing a collapse and they're seeing, they're having a really hard time thinking about life a different way. They also, there's actual love involved and there's really fear involved because this person knows them really well. It's not easy leaving. Um, again, we're talking about stats. So there's something that statistics showed for a long time and now has a term of its own called separation abuse, which is that somebody who is separated is several times more likely to suffer abuse than somebody who is married. Because the most dangerous time for an abuse survivor is when they try to separate and leave the mm-hmm. abuse situation. Right. So so what and that that comes back to the point of what's what's the biggest barrier? It, that's why she, you know, why does she just not leave? That's why she doesn't just leave, because when you're about to leave is a significantly more dangerous, more lethal even period of time. So I would say um, abuse thrives on vulnerability. If the vulnerability is immigration status, then he's going to remind her every day. And I'm going to use he here because majority of abuse is occurring by women, right? Um, But if it's immigration status, he's going to remind her, you know, you're here just because of me. You will get deported, um, which is not immediately true. There's that's actually legally inaccurate in many situations. But they'll say you'll get deported if you leave me. You'll get deported if you call the police. The vulnerability is, say, a physical, you know, um, disability, something we don't talk about in our community. If she's dependent on him for certain things, like we know of situations, abuse survivors hide everything from prescription glasses to somebody's crutches, right? Like So whatever vulnerability a person can use, they do use because they're trying to keep this one individual under their thumb. And that's really 
you know, whatever. So whatever vulnerability helps them maintain that status quo they're going to use. So if it's language access, right? So, and, and many times it's all of those things. Um, this is why the term gaslighting is used so very often. It's basically right. telling, you know, altering um, somebody's sense of reality because everything they can see and feel as truth um, they're told, no, no, that's not true. That's all in your head. So oftentimes people even will approach friends and relatives saying, I'm not sure if this is normal, but like X, Y, Z is happening to me. People don't often come and say, hey, abuse is happening. Oh, I'm being, you know, violated in my own home. They'll say, these behaviors, do this sound normal? Maybe I'm overreacting. That's how a lot of people begin approaching friends and um, family and sometimes even strangers that you know or or sangat members at the good are trying to bring up like this is going on am i crazy because they've been told they're crazy yeah. um yeah so and again mental health is something that we all have mental health just like we have physical health and we all have challenges to mental health just like we all have some challenges to physical health but the the extent of challenges is different for different people abuse survivors show um report, you know, significantly more, even by our own surveys that we've done in the community, um, they will report more poor mental health days than non-abuse survivors. So again, you're now talking to somebody who is feeling all of this fear, all of these doubts, um, all of this gaslighting, and is suffering often physical and mental health challenges. So leaving and shifting their entire life and their, you know, the way they are getting through the world is is extremely challenging and scary for people. So you talked earlier about the importance of kind of preventative work um, when it comes to, you know, assisting survivors and kind of, you know, stopping this cycle from happening in the first place. So I kind of wanted to transition a little bit to some of the causes of this. Um, and it seems to me, at least, there's like there's quite a bit of interconnectedness between some of these issues that, you know, the domestic violence doesn't exist in just a vacuum, you know, whether that's, you know, maybe one of the main causes being sort of the general just cultural patriarchy that we have in the Punjabi community and, and sort of, you know, uh, different, um, you know, manifestations of toxic masculinity, whether that's otherwise other issues related to mental health, depression, alcoholism that we also know are epidemics in the Punjabi community. Um, and, and I say that, by the way, not to excuse, uh, you know, the action of, of any perpetrator, but just as kind of, you know, uh, to give kind of a fuller picture of, you know, what kind of is happening in some of these situations. What what do you see are some of the main causes and how do we kind of um, break that cycle, you know, before, before it happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you touched on a lot of it. The United Nations talks about domestic violence as a gender problem, and you cannot take gender out of it. Um, it's actually surprising how many people, men, and even now increasing, they feel like a lot of young women are pushed into this place of saying, well, is there a non-gender framework to think about it? Because we know not all men do this, or, you know, we don't, like, we don't hate men. We don't want to, of course, we don't hate men. I think it should, like, go without saying, not all men do this. Um, at the same time, all men benefit from patriarchy right now. All men benefit from a system in which men as leaders, men as the top, men as kings of their castle or their gurdwara or whatever else are um, are the norm. And it's seen as a really big deal. And like, we're like, oh, a woman's on the committee or it's all, you know, it's not... 
all women panels are like considered like some some sort of achievement we've done, whereas we've lived with centuries of all men, men, everything. So because all men benefit from the system in a certain way, um, they get a, away with a lot of um, behaviors in, in an unquestioned way that make it really hard to prevent to prevent domestic violence in relationships. So like examples in our community are men acting out their masculinity. Like you use toxic masculinity. And the example would be something like, which every, almost every second Punjabi Ghana and movie. And I listen to most of them and watch all of them. So I'll just say that, like, I'm guilty of that. That's my, you know, even though sometimes I don't want to, because they make me so mad because, you know, being jealous of and even stalking a woman are seen as romantic, Mm -hmm. which is, not actually romantic it's putting another person in fear over time and it's telling another person if i can't have you no one can have you and that's totally normal and that should you know that does not respect the other person's individuality their freedom their self-determination um and instead puts this very weird notion of oh he must love me so much he's so jealous of me Mm -hmm. jealousy um by you know, there's something called a danger assessment, um, which is a tool, is an evaluation tool that a lot of experts use. Now police departments use, other places use to figure out how dangerous or how lethal is a domestic violence situation. And extreme jealousy is one of the top factors of how dangerous a domestic violence situation is. This whole, like, if I can't have you, no one else will. So in our community, you know, I, I know you asked like a bigger philosophical question, but I feel like it's the small things that we really need to start um, focusing on. Mm-hmm. You know, just like we see singers in the U.S. being called out on ableism and other things when they're, you know, putting them in their songs, no matter how much somebody might like that singer. That's something we need to do as a Punjabi community. We need to call out um, singers and songwriters and our film industry and, and supposed entertainment that keeps perpetuating ideas and keeps forwarding ideas that really make domestic violence part of, like almost par for the course and very normal right um so and and i think this is in our community right like like this kind of like idea of how men handle emotions um needs to be challenged i i just earlier today was saying to somebody you know no, let them cry. Stop telling the child not to cry. Um, we need to allow our children to have all their feelings. That doesn't make them less sick. It doesn't make them have less tardikala. It doesn't make them less of sins or cores. They need to have all their feelings. We often get calls on the Sick Family Center helpline from men navigating very difficult health and family situations, loss in family um, other stuff that they're trying to navigate, difficulties in their marriages, and have no words for emotions they don't know how to even talk about their emotions so we're doing a real disservice to men and women in the community when we have these very fixed ideas of if you're a man you get mad and you get even and you know that's what you do and if if you're a woman you go tell a man to protect you or you cry or you just take care of and you nourish like these very fixed gender roles is a problem right um so uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I can go on about this forever. And I, I know I'm rambling a little bit here, oh. but I, I really think it's the everyday things that our children take cues from. You know, I was at a dentist's office once with a little kid being told by the Sardar dentist, like, and it just like immediately struck with me, like, okay, you know, now he associates tears not only with, but he's also being told, like, tears is equal to weakness 
is right. equal to kuriya and a kuriya weakness like that notion we put so early on in our children and i think that's really important to begin challenging very early if, if we are serious about prevention and the root causes of of violence so i think the question of practically speaking what can all of us be doing you know in our day to day lives with our relationships with people who may have you know may be survivors or have been survivors um is an important one one thing specifically that i wanted to ask you about is you know at least in your experience i think one thing that we often hear when it comes to issues of karelu hinsa is a karda mamlaya you know we do sort of have this idea that you know you shouldn't get involved in other people's business and even um anecdotally just from some experiences that i've had that sentiment even coming from survivors themselves that e- either out of fear um mm-hmm. you know they don't want this information getting out um mm-hmm. you know because of some you know either fear of retribution or or you know whatever kind of vulnerabilities they they may have mm-hmm. um and and sort of what have you found to be sort of um an you know an un- unending question maybe but sort of the balance between um respecting a survivor's wishes uh but also not letting continued abuse you know uh happen um and not getting kind of complacent as well yeah so so the first this general idea of karda mamla we're so conveniently picky about what's karda mamla and what's not right Absolutely. like everyone and their chachi thinks it's okay to walk up to people and ask like tode bachche ka bachche ka do kar rahe ho family ka do kar rahe ho vyah ka do kar rahe ho vyah ho gaya nahi like we're in everybody's kar diya mamla like the most intimate kar de mamle all the time yeah. and have complete cultural like acceptance or have given each other permission to ask you know kar khrida kinne da khrida gaddi khridi kinne di bich like you know we we ask all these things right and then when it comes to actually standing with survivors it becomes kar da mamla which is so true really ridiculous um so i but i do i really appreciate your second part of the question what do you do in a situation where the survivor themselves so i'll get to that in a second but this karda mamla i think this is when you're seeing some couples dynamics seeing like has all sorts of red flags and you're concerned instead of putting the survivor at more risk um by like finding a way to talk to them separately instead of starting that route you know why not start with the person who's doing behavior that seems wrong right why not start with commenting on like what are you doing what are you saying that's your girlfriend or that's your wife or like why are you making this horrible joke like you know i think those things just naming them informally as they come up in our language or saying hey time out like i know we're all laughing but that wasn't actually funny <laughs> that was deeply sexist or deeply problematic i think that's important and i also think it's important um even if we think like we talk to survivor and they're like okay no i don't want you to intervene remember that's because there could be fear there mm-hmm. could also be the fact that they're not sure what they want to do yet but you still saying i'm here whatever choice you make i would love to help put you in touch with whoever can help whenever is really important for them to know there's somebody there um is not the same as them having you know is is very important for them to say i don't want to talk about this right now is not the same as them saying i don't want to talk about this ever okay. so i think that and that's something we say to people on our helpline when they call us and sometimes they very apologetically say um nahi sorry toda time waste kita and i mean I, i will say this to people on the helpline i say this to fellow lawyers um i say this to anybody who's listening whenever we're gentle and kind and standing on the right side of you know a situation there's no time wasted if somebody knows that there's another human being out there who 
you know, felt and felt for them, um, really understood that their rights matter, recognize their individuality. There's no time lost. Even if they walk away from you in that moment, they know there's somebody out there. And that's really important. That might be the difference between them leaving the next time or seeking. And leaving is not always the goal, right? We're not, I'm not saying everybody who's in a domestic violence situation seeks to get divorced or everybody even seeks to get separated. The, every case is different. The only common thread is every single domestic violence case, whether that's like, you know, somebody who's lived in this country forever, somebody who's come yesterday, somebody who speaks English, somebody who speaks not a word. The only commonality is everyone wants the abuse to stop. That is the only commonality. Otherwise, what they want, some people want people sent to jail. Some people want people, you know, to just separate from them, live in another house and raise their kids together still. Some people want to remain married and for him to get therapy. Like lots of people want different things Mm -hmm. and we want to respect that. But I think just letting a person know you're there for them is super essential. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's sometimes not enough when you feel like they're in a lot of danger. Like what if you start thinking this person's clinically depressed, has stopped eating, has stopped coming out, and they're saying, just leave me on my in my situation. I think that's where, depending on the relationship with them and your access level, providing information or resources is really important. Like, look, I don't need to discuss this with you. You're right, Ekarada Mom. Use their words as they use, right? So uh, when we train volunteers or people who volunteer even on our helpline, we say, if she's saying made a husband, we'll say made a husband. If she if she's like, well, if she if she's using a gall, we don't actually like go and curse the guy, but we'll say he, right? But if he like whatever language they're choosing, we want to respect that and use that. Um, so if they're saying, you know, this is private, say, I know this is private. There are private numbers you can call and talk in absolute privacy, right? And for that, I, I should say, like Sick Family Center, we ne- we never tell anyone who calls us. We keep no records month to month of who's calling us so that nobody can, you know, somebody tries to even get into our computers or systems. There will be no records of who we talk to. We're very, very concerned about safety. We will um, definitely never conform to somebody we were working with or are working with this woman or child. We will neither conform nor deny. So somebody can say, like, if you sent somebody to me and then you said, oh, did she call you, Malika? I'll say, oh, uh, Arjun, thanks for asking. Can't tell you. Like, and people will get annoyed sometimes. Apne log will be like, like, what's, you know, like, why aren't you telling me? Um, because if I tell you today that she did call or didn't call the next time, you know what to read into my answer. If I'm saying, oh, I can't tell you. And, oh, oh yeah, you know, so it's it's a very weak, keep it consistent. We never share. And, you know, just giving a survivor that information that there are Punjabi resources, sick resources, non-sick resources, completely anonymous out there, national helplines that have nothing to do with our community. Sometimes people want to call one of those. They don't want to call a community number. We understand that. We don't push like, a J6 survivor call a sick family center. No, sometimes people really want to call some Bura number and talk to somebody they're convinced has no rishtadari with them, no friendship with them, nothing, right? So that's fine. Just giving them a menu of resources can be really helpful because you never know when they finally make that choice of, okay, this person really seemed concerned about me. They seemed concerned enough to give me resources. I'm not that concerned about me, but they were, and they might pause and actually look into their situation. Um, more and better and deeper and make um, choices and safety plan for like a a better, you know, future. So that's the 
I don't know if I answered your question, but no, absolutely. And actually, on the issue of resources, so obviously, Sick Family Center is is a resource for for survivors. Um, what other you know resources are out there? You know, either at a nonprofit level, like yours, at a governmental level. Um, and I think also a question that I want to maybe ask you about because um, we were kind of fielding questions to different audience members about what you know people might want to ask you. I mean, one thing that came up, which you kind of alluded to at the beginning, is you know what role do sick institutions play in this? You know, if at all, right? I think we have maybe some skepticism uh, that they could play a role because ultimately our institution is are only as strong as as we are, and if we're you know, um, if torture are happening and, you know, they're, they're not a safe space for people to talk about these issues, you know, that the institution can play much of a role, but um, it's kind of a shame. Uh, and so, you know, I've heard about, you know, there's a program, I think, at one of the Gurdwaras in South Hall in the UK that has kind of started, uh, you know, a discussion group for people who have dealt with alcoholism, right? Otherwise, a very taboo subject in the Gurdwara itself. Um, you know, what role do you see going forward in sort of our traditional sick institutions playing uh, in this in this issue? Yeah, so so you absolutely, you know, the key point is our institutions are as, as strong as we are. And so when we keep saying, Gurdwara kuch nahi karde, Gurdwara kuch nahi karde, because asi kuch nahi karde, right? Like that, it's all linked. Um, we do, uh, despite that, so at Sikh Family Center, we created a family violence resource guide for Gurdwara, which is this booklet written in Punjabi, not translated, written in Punjabi and written in English. Um, so it can be read by, and it's written for Gurdwara committees and sevadars. So it's not this idea of like, go make an announcement the gurdwara hi bachari like this whole bachari model that we have that's not what's happening people do the best they can with all their resources to get through these really difficult situations and every so often people go to gurdwaras and i would say quite often and ask what resources they can provide and the worst thing to tell the survivors i have no idea what can help you and that happens very often gurdwara um, and we shouldn't look at the paisabs. We shouldn't look at people who have no power in the Gurdwara. Quite frankly, I mean, whether Gurdwara is like hearing this or not, but I'll say it. Our, we treat our paisabs and our sevadars pretty horribly. Absolutely. Across the country, I think there's one Gurdwara that provides medical health insurance for um, paisabs coming from India, coming from other places. Even paisabs not coming from India, who've been living at Gurdwara forever, have no medical insurance. Like that is just ridiculously inhumane in a country where you will um, incur devastating medical bills, like if your appendix bursts or like any tiny thing happens. So um, much tinier than appendix even. But I think going and saying these biceps should know what to say. Like people are like, Yani training, got a bicep train. Not till the committees have buy-in, not till the committees say, yes, if a bicep brings somebody to us who's come and confided in them, we will have a plan of what to do. Um, so our plan for the Gurdwara and your larger question about institutions is that we should be very, we should with humility acknowledge our expertise, right? We, instead of going into like a, you know, Rambo savior mode, like, or going into a mode of like, which is something people say, like Gurdwara leaders, others, community leaders, other institutions um, we've had cases of people doing both things. One, on the one hand, going into this full like, we can't believe this. Like, we're going to go in and, you know, fix everything for you. We'll save your mode. We're going to save you, poor woman. And on the flip side, there's the whole, eh, okay, to see, you know, jada ho gaya, har kar chalo si, you know, sula Well, you might be doing sula in a deeply dangerous, lethal mm-hmm. situation. 
um, I think Gurdwaras and other institutions should think about their liability of doing sulas and other things like, and, you know, so even if they don't want to be humble, like think about it strategically, it's not, you can be liable for providing completely inaccurate information, insufficient assistance, all of that in a dangerous situation. So I would um, say our institutions should know what resources are out there and should connect people to the resources. The number one principle should be bar- is what we borrow from the medical field, um, which is do no harm. So if somebody comes to you, let them walk out at least in the situation they came in and not worse, not thinking that maybe there is no solution. Like they don't know, like you know, instead of doing that and making things compounding the issue. Um, we should perhaps learn and practice how to say, and, and this probably goes a shout out to a lot of the men to practice this because it's not something that we're acculturated um, or our boys and men are acculturated saying, I don't know, especially those in leadership positions. I don't know. Like this sounds terrible. I don't know. That doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. Let me connect you. Let me find the national hotline number. Let me find every state has a domestic violence coalition. Um, every county and, you know, courthouses have legal aid or legal self-help or other centers. So even if the person is not feeling really savvy themselves to look for all of this, call a group like us, ask us. We often get community members and friends calling and saying what resources exist in XYZ state, in XYZ county. Um, but just know there are national suicide prevention hotlines, national domestic violence hotlines, state coalitions that deal with domestic violence. So to tell a person, I can find you at least one phone number of a known resource, or let me look, let me, you know, get you connected somewhere. I think that's really a big, big step instead of saying, right? Like that whole idea of I know what you can do is is really misplaced. We have no idea what such an intimate dynamic in somebody's home looks like. And I think the best thing we can do is really connect people, show them we actually care and connect them with resources out there. It might not feel as satisfying in the moment. It's more satisfying to go on Twitter and do a post and say, look at this horrible John word. Here's his picture. But you don't even know if the survivor wants that. Does the, the the victim or the survivor want that? Do their kids want that? That is somebody's father. That's somebody's husband. They don't necessarily even want you talking about them in that way. And that's something our our Twitter happy um, you know generation doesn't think about. There are generations, I should say, all age groups are on social media doing that kind of stuff. I think we need to really pause and think what actually helps versus what makes us feel like better about helping those can be two very different things and then one thing i want to ask about you know for audiences and you've touched upon this i think in in various different aspects but to kind of synthesize some of it maybe in you know uh and again i'm also kind of like you were saying we'll use the term you know men you know in this context because that's who the majority of the perpetrators are um you know, maybe part of it is in raising kids. Maybe part of it is just in our interpersonal relationships and friendships, calling people out when, you know, they say something or do something that's sexist or um, what have you. What do, you know, what role in particular do Punjabi men have in kind of preventing this epidemic from continuing? Because I think, especially maybe uh, since some of these conversations have resurfaced since the Malipur incident, I do think a lot of uh, Punjabi men are now kind of of the mindset that it's not enough to just kind of be a good guy yourself and do the bare minimum, which is, you know, not be 
you know, a scumbag to the women in your, in your life, you know, there, there's something more has to be done on an individual level. Um, and so, you know, maybe some of those things I mentioned, but what are, what are some other things that, you know, the, the role that Punjabi men have in, in kind of finding a solution to this, this, uh, issue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is so much I like how you said the bare minimum the bare minimum of course is yeah in your own immediate lives and so for some people it's not as easy to say you know just to meet that bare minimum and so I'll recognize that because a lot of Punjabi boys have grown up in households with violence Mm -hmm. that is the only way they have seen couples you know quote-unquote interact um, it's not interactions, one person controlling the other. That's not a relationship. That's a dominance model that has benefited one person and really hurt another. But if that's all they've seen as children, um, it's not all they know, but it's something that becomes a reflex action and a thought that their mind goes to even when they know better. So if you, like as a Punjabi guy, find yourself in that situation where you have no idea how to handle emotions in a relationship. You have no idea how to handle your own anger. You keep defaulting to if anything goes bad in your life outside in the outside world, you come home and take it out. You need to seek actual help and you need to figure out how to, you know, your, your stuff, including your childhood trauma, which is no small thing. Um, Numbers vary, you know, everything from 10 times as likely boys who witness violence at home or 10 times as likely to become abusive themselves to, I don't know what the numbers, you know, it, the numbers are all over the place, but they're mm-hmm. several times more likely. And what we like explaining at Sick Family Center is that, yes, hurt people often hurt people, right? Um, but it's also true that a lot of hurt people are able to address their hurt and and help and move things forward um, and transform their lives and other people's lives. And so to me, it's really essential for people to examine in their own life, like, am I really being, am I really capable? Do I have the skill set to be in a relationship and be healthy in a relationship? Or I do I first need to talk to somebody about that to begin with, right? Um, do I use alcohol as an excuse? Um, as both a coping mechanism and an excuse for violence. All studies show that use of alcohol does not cause domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Alcohol across cultures is used as an excuse of low lowered inhibitions, you know, jovi karlia karlia kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, use of drugs does not cause domestic violence. Even mental health problems do not cause domestic violence. These are all things that we culturally, instead of saying gender and patriarchy cause domestic violence, we're used to saying, ah, cheese karke domestic violence. But alcohol doesn't help in a domestic violence situation, it makes it worse. Alcohol, dom- drug use doesn't help. Similarly, if somebody has men- untreated, sometimes undiagnosed mental health situations, that doesn't help in a domestic violence sure. dynamic either. So what, what men should do beyond figuring out for their own relationship and their own selves, definitely when it's uncomfortable, but still stopping friends and stopping others in their tracks as they're making those comments, as they're making them about other girls, as they're making them about their own families or their own um, wives. And I think men need to stop pretending to be good feminists and actually be good feminists. And feminism here, again, people like hate, it's such a controversial, you know, oh my God, the F word. So feminism is just the radical idea. I think it was Christine Littleton, a feminist who said, it's just a radical idea of um, taking women seriously, right? Like women are human beings and everybody's a human being and recognizing even before that, I would say Grunanik was a feminist because recognizing that jolt in each person being valuable, regardless of your 
you know, particular reproductive organs, I think is what we're going back to. So being a good feminist instead of posing like one, instead of standing up in seminars and saying, yes, we need to think about domestic violence, like actually doing something in the moment when somebody comes to you and confides in you, if it's that, if that's your own sister, right? Like not responding with, you know, and asking her, what do you want? Like, what do you, like actually doing that hard work of stopping your own emotional reaction, which women are taught to do since they're children. Like you have to listen to your family and guys are just like, let loose in many situations like that's supposed to be just the guy thing to do. I think really practicing, how do we go back to the women in our lives and ask them, okay, I I stand with you. Now you tell me what to do, returning power. So just remember that domestic violence thrives on powerlessness. It thrives on people taking away power. So a domestic violence survivor has been told so many times, you don't have the power. You don't have the power to stop me. You don't have the power to leave me. You don't have the power to report me. So whoever she confides in, any bit of power they can return to her is is huge, is is really um, reinforcing for that person and re-strengthening. So I would say taking cue, not being saviors, not deciding you have the answers, not deciding you know what to do. And if you have successfully helped, um, we've dealt with this too. We have a lot of volunteers, so Sikh Family Center, women and men. We're entirely women-run organization, probably the only one um, of its kind right now uh, in terms of sick women um, board and sick women staff. And we're funded by and supported by, and I would say loved by a lot of male volunteers. And we have male volunteers also, we have to remind if you were able to successfully assist in one situation, doesn't mean the same tactics apply to the next, right? So Bringing that humility to each situation, I think, is a little bit harder for men because, again, we've done disservice to men as boys and they have just not, they're not as attuned. There's nothing, I think, biological about the, the female ability to connect in this. And I think it's sociological. It's, it's we haven't allowed boys to develop that. So I think if they could, if you could help in one situation by doing X, Y, Z, doesn't mean the next situation is going to be exactly the same. So to not become the expert and instead, Always remember the victim, the survivor is the expert of their situation, but they just need some time, some support, some reassurance to really claim that expertise and do what they need to. So I hope that helps in someone. Yeah, come volunteer for domestic violence organizations, gender-based violence organizations. There's a very powerful organization called Call to Men. Um, it's not a sick organization. It's out there a mainstream organization. But we often talk about in Sick Family Center, like how nice would it be if you had 26 men who are like, hey, I want to do a little video for you about how men standing, sick men standing against domestic violence and how how amazing it would be for people to see sick men with, you know, in all their um, diversity, but talking about them standing against domestic violence and what that means to them or why they care about domestic violence, like actually visibly putting yourself out there and then actually walking the talk, I think is is what what we need a lot more for men to do. Definitely. And I, before we let you go, I think the last thing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, for, uh, you know, anyone who's interested in the audience, how can we support Sick Family Center uh, in any capacity? Yeah, you can definitely volunteer. We're, we're constantly trying to build a network of um, a collaborative network of volunteers. We call you know them community advocates. We're trying to have people in every state who we have some connection with so that when we have a case or a situation from that state, or even if you want to talk to the Gurdwara in that state, we have somebody local with some local knowledge. Um, we also obviously train people. We provide all sorts of different trainings that people may want 
to equip themselves to better respond to a domestic violence situation. Like for a lot of people, they wouldn't know what a safety plan is, right? They often think, oh yeah, yeah, we have to get her another phone, right? But that's not it. What if she has a GPS tracker on her car? What if, you know, there's so many other things and there's also emotional safety to think about. So we kind of go through those kinds of things in trainings. Um, people can volunteer to video ed- edit, to translate, to do other things that involve never talking to another human being or a person in your community. So everybody has different comfort levels. So we will take volunteers and meet them wherever they're at in terms of comfort level. Um, people can donate uh, for sure. We're all, you know trying to raise money so that we're more than part-time. It's two part-time people and two very, very part-time contractors right now for the only national organization focused on gender-based violence. And I think that itself is something we have to change we have to put our money where our mouth is as well um and we do stuff like you know urgent action funds for survivors so if you have a survivor like right now we have somebody trying to buy a used car or we have somebody whose child needs back to home supplies like back to school supplies so we do have those funds so people can always donate instead of for staffing of the organization for individual assistance and urgent action motel vouchers new cell phones those kinds of things as well um so yeah, follow us on social media if that's your thing. Email us if that's your thing. Call us if that's your like more um, old school thing. We do all of that. We work across generations and we have volunteers of all all ages and all different um, interests and backgrounds and capacities. Awesome. Well, Professor, again, want to thank you so much for, for coming on. And, you know, I think this was very informative for myself and hopefully for uh, the audience as well. Um, and just, uh, you know, really uh, are glad that you're doing the work that you do and, um, you know, keep it up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arjun. Okay, that's your call. Sure.